Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Maeve Marsden, and you're listening to Queer Stories, the podcast for the monthly LGBTQIA storytelling night I run at Giant Dwarf in Redfern, with support from the City of Sydney. This week, activist and donor dad, Paul Van Wright. I wanted to um, do a couple of things before I started. Let me acknowledge the specialness of this event. Um, I'm kind of old. Uh, and I've, Yeah, I know. Uh, and I've been an activist for a long time, and um, I might get very teary in a moment. I couldn't imagine an event like this happening when I started as a gay activist, okay? Um, the fact that we've had like, you know, four months or whatever of queer stories being told um, is extraordinary. Um, those of you in the audience who've kind of lived through our times can, I hope, register the fabulousness of this event. And for those of you who can't, grab this experience because it is, a, it is extraordinary. Um, outside of homosexual conferences, this would never have happened in my time. So big ups to everybody who's involved in this. Um, I was asked to give a kind of title to this, and I've called it The Everlasting Open Family. And for those of us who are as old as I, Frank Morehouse, um, uh, Australian writer, once wrote a very strange book called The Everlasting Secret Family, which is basically about kind of a pedophile ring. Uh, yeah, go Frank. But I wanted to call this The Everlasting Open Family to kind of counteract that, but also to give you a sense of what this story is about. So, here we go. My eldest daughter, Mary, married five years ago. Not gay married, 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 okay? Yeah. My eldest son, Rajendra, got married last month. Also, married, married, yeah. <laughs> to misquote dear old lady Bracknell, for a gay dad to have one child marry may be regarded as a misfortune. <laughs> To have two children marry looks like carelessness. <laughs> yeah. So how did a pro-feminist, long-term gay activist father let this happen? <laughs> yeah. So I never expected to or wanted to be a dad. I grew up in a very Catholic family but I can't recall the subject of having to obey the biblical imperative to go forth and multiply um, ever coming up. Actually, there were no discussions about sex at all. I had girlfriends during high school, but they were good Catholic girls, so sloppy tongue kissing and the occasional grope of a fully clothed tit in the back of my dad's car was as far as we ever got. I spent the first years of uni stoned or tripping 
And sex was the last thing on my mind. And lots of other weird things were on my mind. Yeah. Uh, all through my mid-twenties, I kept desperately falling in love with men and getting the odd fondle when they came home drunk and I was crashing on the beanbag in the lounge room of their share house, though happily it never ended in a muriel wedding moment. <laughs> I hadn't got around to being honest with myself about being gay yet, and I'm still not sure what on earth I thought I was actually doing with these guys. And I was still a virgin. Then Diane, a good friend of mine from uni days, returned from Europe. And within the course of a week, I was no longer a virgin and had begun what became a six-month live-in heterosexual relationship. <laughs> While it ended, when it ended, we stayed friends and she asked me to promise that if she ever wanted to have a child, I would be the father. I did. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I'm that kind of guy. <laughs> uh, and a couple of years later, she rang me to take me up on the offer. Now, the timing of Diane's request had the potential to be very awkward. In the intervening years, I had come out, been through two partners, was on to the third, so to speak, and the house I shared with two again was, was a de facto office for the Gay Solidarity Group. Uh, kind of through the real left of the gay movement at that stage. Um, kids and families were not part of our lives or the lives of most of the gay men and lesbians with whom I socialised or campaigned. There were a couple of activists I knew who had been married and had kids before coming out. But the kids lived with their mothers and while the dads would visit them, the kids were not part of their father's gay lives. As good Marxist feminine gay men, we were staunchly anti-patriarchy and so anti-marriage. Now, Diane knew all of this, so I was a bit phased by her call. But she assured me that we wouldn't have to fuck. The kid could be turkey-basted. <laughs> yep, she didn't want any financial support for the child. She did want the child to know I was the father. Uh, and for me to have a part in the child's life as it grew, but she wasn't interested in forming a family with me. I said, yes, because I'm that kind of guy. <laughs> you know. Uh, Diane kept track of her menstrual cycle, and when she was ovulating, I would get a call. She'd come over to my place and hang around in the kitchen while my partner Robert and I had non-penetrative sex in the bedroom, and I would dutifully collect my sperm in one of those urine sample jars from the chemist. <laughs> Diane would take it into another bedroom and inject it into her vagina. <laughs> she did actually use a turkey baster for a couple of times, uh, but switched to a plastic syringe. When she figured the sperm were happily on their journey and not likely to turn around and dribble out again, we'd all have a cup of tea and cakes and Diane would head off till the next time. Things were going as normally as they could under the circumstances. And then came the second fateful phone call. Louise, a lesbian I knew through Robert, asked if I would be one of a quartet, that's uh, four, of donors for her and her partner Margaret. Now at that time, uh, lesbians wanted to have a child, had two choices. Either pretend to be a straight woman with a husband who was infertile if they wanted to access costly IVF from an anonymous sperm donor bank, or they had to find a man who could be a donor on their terms. 
In their case, they would raise a child themselves and expected no financial help from the successful donor. But they did want the child to know the donor and have contact with him when the child wanted it. I said yes as a consciously political act. <laughs> uh, that's kind of what we, you know, gay boys did back then. Yep. Yep. <sighs> now, um, Diane became pregnant and we settled down in watching and waiting mode. I'd get calls telling me how things were going and occasionally get a grainy black and white ultrasound which just looked like a shot of a radar screen tracking some weather event. <laughs> Meanwhile, Louise was having trouble with the reliability of her donors. When she heard that Diane was pregnant, she decided to keep me on as the only donor. She also decided that she wanted a child with built-in sun protection. Um, and that's when things started to get very interesting for all of us. Louise and Margaret asked to meet Diane and also wanted their child to know that Diane's child was their child's sibling. <laughs> and for them to spend time with each other. We were embarking on an extended family of choice and it was uncharted territory. Our joint commitment was to keep talking and working things out particularly once the kids were born and started to have wishes of their own about the kinds of relationships they wanted with each other and with us, and to answer the kids' questions honestly as appropriate to their age. Meanwhile, <laughs> things were going quite strange in Diane's side of the family. Her sister was worried that their elderly mum wouldn't accept a grandchild born out of wedlock. So, on Valentine's Day, <laughs> six months into her pregnancy, Diane rang me. Now, I don't know if you know this, but Valentine's Day is the only day on which a woman can ask a man to marry her. Uh, if the man refuses, he has to buy her a dozen pair of white gloves. At least, that's the story Diane told me. We didn't have Wikipedia back then, so I couldn't quickly go and check out the story. I was a cheapskate and went for marriage. <laughs> yeah. We had two ceremonies. One at the registry office. And her sister and brother-in-law, my parents, and Robert, my partner, were the witnesses. Oh, you know. Then we had a queer ceremony with uh, Mother Inferior of the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence as celebrant. The highlight of which was that a gay friend of mine in a gorgeous white wedding dress threw himself at my feet shouting, It should have been me! <laughs> and he kind of birthed a champagne bottle from under his dress. <laughs> Three months later, Mary was born. When the very long labour was over, Diane was so exhausted that after quick cuddle and bonding with Mary, uh, she handed Mary over to me and went to sleep. So there I was, a gay man in a birthing room with a child I'd never expected to have, 
never particularly wanted to have, <laughs> but was absolutely, I'm going to get teary now, um, was entranced by, and whom I now wanted very much indeed. Rajendra, Louise's son, was born five months after Mary. I saw him the day after he was born. Thank God I didn't have to go through a labor twice. <laughs> oh, Lord. And again, I was besotted with this kid from the first look. Word was now out that I was a reliable donor. <laughs> and soon, I was donating to other lesbians. Usually, the sperm was collected from my place in a transaction that lasted about as long as a pizza delivery, but in reverse. If I went to the women's place to donate, they would sometimes have gay male porn on the bedside table, just in case I was having an off day. I never asked what they did with the porn after I left. I wasn't asked to have a role in the life of any of those children who might be born and they were not going to know their siblings. I don't even know if any or how many were born, except in one case where the mothers asked me for a picture that the child could have when she was curious about her donor. When she was born, they sent me a picture of her in return, but no contact details as we had agreed. Now, look, I was fine with all of that. As far as I was concerned, the decisions about the child's life should be made by the women who were going to raise the child. None of us knew it at the time, but we were having our children in the early years of the AIDS epidemic in Sydney. The guy I lost my gay virginity to died of an AIDS-related illness. So did my first partner. So did the few casual fucks. And so did one of Louise's other donors. By the time Kerry and Simon were friends of mine, asked me to be their donor because Simon was infertile, there was a test for HIV. We'd all been very lucky. I was negative. Alexis was born five years after Raj. Kerry and Simon also wanted Alexis to know I was her donor dad and to have contact with the siblings. That same year, Louise and Margaret asked me to donate again. By now, being a dad was a total buzz. <laughs> so I said, yep. This time around, I would go to their house for the drop-off. Five-year-old Raj, remember, he was the second of the kids, used to wonder why I would come over, play with him for a while, have dinner, and need a nap straight after. <laughs> and then his mum would need a nap straight after that. The line was that I was tired after the long drive from Birchgrove to Wilmington. Right? <laughs> Jesse, my second son, was a result of those naps. <laughs> so we all settled into being this modern family. Mm. We'd get together for the kids' birthdays, for Father's Day, to go watch the latest Pixar or Miyazaki. The mothers helped the kids negotiate the minefield that is the classroom and playground in a relentlessly heterosexual world. But the kids were growing up more than all right. Then, 
10 years after Jesse was born, I got a call from Bromwyn, a heterosexual friend of mine. She was planning to have a child by donoring with a gay friend of hers and wanted to talk with me about what to discuss with the guy and how to approach the whole process. I've had a bit of a reputation as being like, you know, donor central. <laughs> we arranged to meet for coffee. When I turned up, she told me that the prospective donor had got cold feet and called other things um, and backed out. We talked about how disappointing that was and how much she had already gone through in getting to this stage. You guess what happens next, don't you? <laughs> yeah. I told her that if she liked, I would be her donor. About 18 months later, Arlo, my youngest son, was born. Bronwyn also wanted Arlo to know I was his dad and to know and interact with his siblings. And so our family was again extended. Now, apart from my youngest brother, the rest of my birth family still only knew about Mary. Yeah. Oh boy. There are several coming outs in this story. <laughs> My parents had looked after Mary from time to time and when she was young, and she was very much their grandchild. My dad was turning 80. From having some difficult times over the years, we had grown increasingly close. And I wanted him to meet his other grandchildren. So, with everyone's agreement, after a birthday, Yum Char in Marigold, <laughs> with my parents, my eldest brother, and his wife, born again Christians, by the way, <laughs> my youngest brother and his wife and kids, I told my dad I had a special birthday present for him. <laughs> and I put pictures of all the kids on the table, one at a time like a gambler in a Kenny Rogers song. <laughs> With each picture, his smile broadened. I know. I loved him. God, oh, God, I'm getting so teary now. Wow. <laughs> that year, at our annual Boxing Day family get-together, my parents met all their grandchildren and their grandchildren's parents. Not long after, I featured on an episode of Australian Story on the ABC called Father's Day. Mary and Raj, two eldest kids, and Bronwyn took part. It was a very public coming out for me as a donor dad and for them as gaybies. We didn't even use the term then, but gaybies it became. Jesse was in his last year of high school and hadn't said anything about his conception or about me, which was fine with me. But. The day before the episode screened, he told his closest friends, all of whom were totally supportive of him. And so began the next phase in the story, this time being told by the kids. And look, I, 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 I kind of wish that all those people in things like the Australian Christian Lobby and so on would actually listen to my kids Jesse, Raj, Louise and Margaret went on to take part in the first version of Maya Newell's Gaby Babies. Raj got involved with the promotion and distribution of the feature-length version of the film and went out to Canberra for a panel after a showing of the film to a handful of politicians at Parliament House. 
Alexis, Kerry, Simon and I were filmed for a Japanese TV documentary on donoring. Alexis and I were on the SBS Insight episode on donor parenting. And last week, Jesse appeared on the Gabies episode of You Can't Ask That. Raj, now a television producer, lamented that we had missed the opportunity for a reality TV show to rival the Kardashians. <laughs> well, Raj, there is still time. <laughs> but Paul, you say, what about this marriage business? Where did you, anti-patriarchy parents, all go so terribly warm? <laughs> well, I don't think we did. We brought our kids up to make their own decisions. And if... And if getting married is one of them, that's fine with me. Let me channel my former... hippie self. <laughs> and leave you all with words that ring true for me every day and which I recommend to all of you current and future LBTIQ and the rest of the alphabet parents. <laughs> uh, this is a poem called On Children and it's written by Khalil Gibran. Very hippie. Your children are not your children. They are the sons and daughters of life's longing for itself. They come through you, but not from you. And though they are with you, yet they belong not to you. You may give them your love, but not your thoughts, for they have their own thoughts. You may house their bodies, but not their souls, for their souls dwell in the house of tomorrow, which you cannot visit, not even in your dreams. You may strive to be like them, but seek not to make them like you. For life goes not backward, nor tarries with yesterday. You are the bows from which your children are living arrows sent forth. Let your bending in the archer's hand be for gladness. Thank you. Thanks for listening. For tickets to the next Queer Stories, visit giantdwarf.com.au. To check out other events I produce and perform in, visit mavemarsden.com. And if you'd like advance or discount tickets to these shows, look me up on crowdfunding platform Patreon. Spin your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records.